Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. When we study Jesus, we find that he offers excellent advice and examples of how to be an effective leader. But oftentimes, it's in a way we're not expecting, and many times, the complete opposite of conventional wisdom. Here's First Pres Senior Pastor Dan Chun with the sermon, The Upside-Down Kingdom of Jesus. Gracious God, today we do want to declare, holy, 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 you are the God Almighty, and you are the name above all names. And we pray as we sing these songs and pray these words, that it truly will be integrated into our daily lives. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, I want to talk about um, what I call the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. You know, if one thinks uh, being a Christian means that Jesus is your hobby, uh, or just one more thing on your resume, you know, like Rotary, Chess Club, Jesus, uh, then there's a great misunderstanding. If one thinks that being a Christian means you just kind of sprinkle Jesus lightly in your life rather than having Jesus as a main ingredient in your diet, then there is a great misunderstanding. And when we truly let Jesus into our lives to lead us, then we discover that we don't do things the same way. We have different attitudes, we have different goals, we have different lifestyle, and we shouldn't be living the same way as before. So case in point, for decades, there was a crosswalk on University Avenue near my house. I crossed it many, many times. It spanned six lanes. And some months ago, I crossed that street walking my dogs, Max and Molly, uh, as we would normally do. And midway after crossing three lanes, I noticed that all these cars were coming at me. And I made a startling and scary discovery. The crosswalk was gone. It was painted over black. Someone in the city and county transportation department decided that the crosswalk was no longer needed. And, and somehow, in my mind, as I saw that faint outline of the crosswalk, I thought it was still there, and boldly I walked across, and then midway of the six-lane street, my heart stopped. I realized cars were coming at me, and I had made a terrible mistake. Ah! Okay, so later I discovered that another neighbor did the very same thing. We thought the paint had just faded over time. We can be such creatures of habit that sometimes we fail to see a major change that has happened, so major that not to acknowledge it is a life and death situation. I want to use this incident as a metaphor for how we can be tempted to keep living in our old ways, to walk the old comfortable paths when trying to reach our goals in life, even after we decide to follow Jesus, even after he said, don't walk the same ways and had erased the way and the ways we used to walk and live. As Christians, we can tend to use Jesus to just make us a little more ahead of where we were without him, maybe a little more rich, more healthy, more powerful, more famous, and we can make Jesus just like a motivational speaker, you know, like Tony Robbins, who helps us find our own potential. Or we wear the jersey of Jesus, but we treat him like he's just some super vitamin that just makes us a little bit more energetic maybe even keep to our, our selfish ways and just 
talk like a Christian and talk Christianese, but don't act like one. I remember when a friend of mine, who was kind of a jerk, uh, became a Christian. But he didn't change much. And one day someone who is not a churchgoer said, yeah, Tom was a jerk, and now he's a Christian jerk. Same guy, he said, but tells people he's a Christian, goes to church. Not a good witness. And actually, when we follow Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to enter us, if we truly want Jesus to be our Lord in all the areas of our life, including our business, our generosity, our home, our relationships, our social life, our sex life, then our lives will drastically change. When we put aside pride and strive to live more humbly, we find that our life is transformed revolutionized, turned upside down, and all because we let ourselves be changed by Jesus. And things start to happen in our hearts from the inside that eventually makes their way to the outside through our actions and our choices. I often call the kingdom of God the upside down kingdom because of what we thought was left or right or higher or lower in status uh, prior to our life with Jesus is now all turned around. What we once thought was hard is now easier. What we thought was ugly is now beautiful. And we see that loving the unlovable is good and possible now. And it's upside down kingdom where Jesus says we have to forgive everyone, even love our enemies, and treat others how we want to be treated. We go, what? Love our enemies? And Jesus says, if you want to be rich, then no, it's harder for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And we go, say what? And the Lord says that a widow who gives just two pennies into a temple treasury that day has given more than anyone else. And we can say, what? Blessed are the meek, he says, for they will inherit the earth. And we can think, no, 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 that, that, that's wrong. The world says, I have to be assertive and competitive, maybe pushy, ambish, ambitious to the point of arrogance to get to the top and inherit the world. But getting to the top is not where we want to go, according to Jesus. And that is what our passage is about. How can that be? Jesus says that when we follow him, it's like being born again. We're going to be really different. We're going to be like radically different. And you hear stories of Jesus changed lives, like prisoners who repent or people who once were flirtatious and unfaithful become faithful or people who once were greedy are now generous or people who like to be with beautiful high stratus status now are willing to be with the disadvantage. In our rooted class, there is an exercise called cardboard testimony. And what that is, people briefly write down on one side of a cardboard how they were at the beginning of the class, and then on the other side of the board, they write how they have changed by the end of the class and as they've studied the scriptures and learned more about Jesus. And it may seem small, but it's significant in being incremental, for that always leads to transformation. So our Bible passage today talks of the upside-down nature of following Jesus. 
and we shall see two young disciples, James and John, struggling with their old ways of religion versus the new way of following Jesus. And here's our passage, and feel free to stand with me in honor of the Word of God as I read from the Bible. Matthew chapter 20, starting with the 20th verse. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked a favor of him. He said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And that's like the cup of suffering and obedience. They, James and John, said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten other disciples heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, it will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, who are you in the story? That's sometimes we ask that question when we do Bible studies. So are you the mother who's pushing her sons forward, jockeying for them to be eternally sitting next to Jesus in heaven? I mean, talk about obnoxious or arrogant. I think of uh, our former associate pastor, not KJ, but one called Sim Fulcher. You know, this is like two sermons in a row I'm quoting Sim. Um, he lives in Augusta with his wife, Mimi, and their dog, Malasada. <laughs> Call him Mala for short. So Sim was telling me that his brother loved coaching football. He loved working with young people. But one day he said, I'm quitting, that's it. And Sim asked, why would you be quitting? You love coaching football. And in a few words, his brother said, mothers and fathers. These mothers and fathers were always pushing their kids forward and complaining why their son wasn't getting more playing time. Why didn't he get to be first string? Why didn't you give him the ball more? Why wasn't he honored more? He has skills, man. And here we see that this parental pressure is nothing new to the 20th, first century. It's been happening since 30 AD. You see, the mother didn't get it. When you follow Jesus, you don't seek the top position, especially not to lord it over them. You seek the lower position to serve others, to make them higher, not you. So we're beginning to see why I say that the kingdom of God is this upside down kingdom. What we see in this secular society as being in the top position would be in the low position in God's upside down kingdom. Jesus would say, your ambition should be the position of a servant, which is much lower. So, as you look at this story, are you the ambitious mother in this story, trying to make your family the one with the most glory and power and honor? 
But that's not to let her sons off the hook. The Gospel of Mark doesn't mention um, the mom, but Mark's account of the story underlines how James and John really wanted uh, those top positions and, um, and to be able to lord it over others. So, question, are you James and John in the story? Do you tend to be highly competitive, maybe cutthroat, ambitious? So let me tell you more about James and John. At times, Jesus renamed his disciples, you know, and there would be great future-telling names. In fact, Jesus renamed Simon, as you know, as Peter, uh, which means Petros in Greek, or the rock. Now, that's a good name. Movie stars have that name, like the rock, Johnson, good name, strong name. You know what Jesus called James and John? He gave them the name Boanerges, meaning sons of thunder. Now, while you may think that is a good name because it sounds solid and strong like the rock, it isn't. Sons of thunder initially meant they were loudmouths, arrogant, a bull in the china shop. Can you imagine people saying, Oh, it's so peaceful and tranquil here. Oh no, here come the sons of thunder. Here's an example of their outspoken, loud, hot-headedness. In the Gospel of Luke, in the ninth chapter, Jesus and the disciples enter a village of um, Samaritans. And uh, the Samaritans don't like the Jewish people, the Jewish people don't like the Samaritans. When Jesus and his entourage walked into the village, the Samaritans did not receive Jesus well. And so how did the sons of thunder respond to this? James and John asked Jesus, quote, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What? It's like they're asking, Lord, shall we go nuclear on them because they're a little rude? And can you use your miraculous powers to obliterate people who disrespect you? Call on the drones of fire to drop hell and heavenly hellfire missiles on them, like bada-bim, bada-bam, kill them. When Jesus heard their remark, Jesus got really angry at them and rebuked them. So, hotheads, loudmouths, violent, unforgiving, sensitive, and then they also want power and status to sit next to Jesus in heaven and rule over people. So you get the picture. These are the disciples who should have known better. I mean, they lived with Jesus for, at this point, at least a year. Followers of Jesus, but they were still living in their old ways. Ah, is that like us? So here's where we get into the heart of the matter for this morning. When we decide to follow Jesus, it is not to accentuate our sinful nature, but to be transformed by him, to be more godly. And the godly way may be opposite day for you, contrary to how you have behaved and thought for years. And this is where commitment to Jesus begins. Are we willing to remove our old worldly, worldly ways of walking on those old crosswalks and instead be led by the Holy Spirit? For some of us, overcoming our racist tendencies or lazy habits or stingy, non-generous ways or polarizing ways is not easy. And that's understandable. 
It's very hard. If we try to do it on our own power, super hard. But it's possible if we ask Jesus for help. The worst thing we can do is to see the Christian life as a way to increase our selfish desires, to use Jesus to serve us and our wants rather than to serve him. And James and John already had this sinful bent towards wanting to be on top of people. They already had this tendency to be prideful. And you see it seep out in the Gospels. In the Gospel story John wrote, John had to refer to himself, and I quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't write that once. But four times, four times he had to tell us he was Jesus' favorite disciple, in his opinion. I mean, really? Of all of the 12 disciples, you had to point out four times that you were the one Jesus loved the most. Son of thunder. His pride shines out again when he talks about Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. When Peter and John were running to the tomb to see if Jesus was still there, John had to write, The two were running together, but the other disciple, meaning John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Really, John, you had to tell us that you were the Usain Bolt of the first century? I mean, for God's sake, literally, the story is about Jesus being resurrected, and you want to tell us that you were the fast runner who beat Peter? And then he ends the entire Gospel of John by writing this conclusion with these two verses. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wait, John. Are you saying that there's so many other things you could have written but would make the document too long, so he had to edit out all those things and just keep to the most important, which is you had to put in that you beat Peter to the tomb on Resurrection Day? Really? You're not only the most loved, but you got to tell us you're the fastest? And that had to be in there? My point is this. James and John, and especially John, were desiring to want Jesus to serve them, serve their sinful, ambitious, earthly, human desires to be number one and two after Jesus. They wanted Jesus to serve them, and then they wanted to lord it over people, which is similar, says Jesus, of how the rulers of Gentiles or pagans would lord it over them. So, tough part in this study. This is a gut check. Are most of our prayers, think about this, are they really asking Jesus to bless our day's agenda and not his? Do most of our prayers sound like, please do this for me, please do that for me, please do this for me, please do that for me. Do we even begin in the morning with, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Are most of our prayers about asking God to prompt people to serve us rather than how can I serve others? 
This is the upside down kingdom. In our earthly world, the, uh, the culture of people or Vanity Fair or TMZ, we like the attention and the glitz and we like reading about it or seeing it. In our earthly world, do we use Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, for examples, to mostly show people how great we are and what a great time we're having in life, rather than to show how great other people are. Wouldn't that be amazing if all of our Facebook entries are of our friends and what great things they're doing? Now, why do we, the followers of Jesus, want to be above Jesus? And we might say, no, 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 I don't want to be above Jesus. Oh, but that's what we are desiring if we're trying to use God to advance ourselves and our agenda, and we're not devoting our life to serving him and through him to serve this community, this city, this state. And if we're not doing that, then we have done, done, the James and John syndrome. Are we beacons of light trying to make this world a better place, or is that all about us? Listen to our prayers and our thought life. Who are we normally praying, what are we normally praying for, and who are we normally praying for? If we decide to follow Jesus, it's not to use him like a holy butler who can make our life better. It is to realize that, oh my gosh, Jesus is God. He is the Lord. And if I want to be great in his eyes, then I must be a servant to all who I meet, the cashier, the waiter, the neighbor, the laborer, the colleague. Take a look at this slide. James and John wanted to be at the top of the pyramid and have other people look up to them and serve them so they can lord it over people and be a tyrant, as Jesus said, and push them down. But in the upside-down kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, the pyramid looks like this. James and John, as followers of Jesus, are on the bottom and their purpose is to serve and push other people up so that they have better lives. They push people above the water so that they won't drown. And Jesus calls us to be servant leaders of all. We are on the bottom pushing other people up, helping the downtrodden, helping the vulnerable, loving others and wanting to encourage and affirm them to help them and their lives get better and not just ours. So indeed, there are givers and takers in this world. There are even tests for that. Um, I think we even did that for our staff. Um, fortunately, they're all givers. Um, there are those who want to push people down and those who want to push people up. Can our church be known for being generous in our efforts to serve others in this community? Now, to go even deeper, can we become givers? This is important because we love God and not so that we can earn his love. Yes, he does love us, whether we're givers or takers. But if we truly love him, we would be givers. For example, I wash the dishes at home, not because that will make Pam, my wife, love me more, but because I love Pam. And I don't want her to, to wash dishes, especially if she spent hours cooking. So I do it out of love, not out of obligation. 
not to win points with Pam, and not so she will love me more. It's all about love. So I want to close with two thoughts. First, in our passage, I mentioned the word ransom. What is this ransom idea that Jesus talks about? And second, what does this have to do with love? The answers to both questions have to do with the understanding and the meaning of the word ransom. Jesus said at the very end of our passage, I'll read this again, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, very famous verse. When we think of the word ransom, we often think of kidnappers, and the ransom is a payment to them, right? Not so in this case. In Greek, the original language of the Bible, the word for ransom is litron, meaning to free a slave or prisoner. So the biblical meaning of ransom is that we buy the freedom of a prisoner or a slave. That's the payment of a ransom. Now, when we think about this, if we really think about this, this just choke us up a bit. I mean, Jesus paid a ransom to free us from the penalty and prison of sin. And Jesus paid a ransom for us even though so often we are selfish and sinful and ungrateful, narcissistic at times, self-centered at the least, and we're very much like James and John. But he loves us that much. How can that be? It's like how parents can love a child when children are babies. They are, are super needy, right? They are self-centered and demanding, and they cry all the time, and their waste material is messy and gets on you, and you have to clean them up several times a day, and they are hungry and insisting on their own way, and they don't always sleep when you want them to, they don't get up when you want them to, and, and you lose sleep, and you lose patience, and, but you love them so much, you will sacrifice your time and energy and money for them, and your work may suffer, and your social life may suffer, but you sacrifice and hope that someday when they are much older, they might give you the respect and love you deserve and would appreciate. So church, I ask us, when are we going to get out of our infant stage and not always demand spiritual milk? When will our prayers and thoughts change from it's all about me to it's all about God? And how can we serve others? When will we get out of that infant or adolescent stage where, when where we will finally give God the respect and love and worship he deserves and do what he says. When will we be in more of a constant serving and sharing mode? For example, when the Alpha Course starts, can we ask ourselves, like, I don't want to go, I've been to it before, or, but change the attitude to like, who can I invite? And maybe join them so that they might know this Jesus who sacrificed so much for us. Same for Rooted or the small groups, life groups. Who can I invite? Now, I said that ransom in the biblical sense is about Jesus making a payment with his death on the cross so that we might no longer be prisoners to our old ways. One way to test if you're still in the old ways 
is to do this self-inventory. As you look at the fruit of the Spirit as listed in the Bible, have you grown over the years in each of the areas? So, let's look at this verse. It's Galatians 5.22, okay? It says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since you became a follower of Jesus, maybe recently or many years ago, are you more loving from when you first started? More joyful? More peaceful? Patient? More kind? More generous? More faithful? More gentle? And have more self-control? You know, a friend of mine took the self-test and honestly said, you know, over the years, I've not grown in any of the areas except maybe in faithfulness. I feel my faith has grown, but none of the areas. I'm not more loving. I'm not more joyful. I'm not more peaceful, not more patient, not more kind, not more generous, not more gentle, and I'm worse at self-control. And he had been a Christian for a long time. So that's an indicator Later, he and I learned about more about the Holy Spirit, and together we began a journey that made us be filled more of the Spirit, and we both experienced more fruit in our lives. You see, the Bible says we're all slaves. We're shackled. We're prisoners to a cosmic evil led and perpetuated by Satan. Many of you might not believe in Satan, but he does exist. And did you know what? Jesus believed Satan existed. Most cultures outside of the Western world have no trouble believing in Satan, who is a personal evil. And to free us from the chains and bondage of Satan's hold on us, Jesus paid the ransom by dying in our place so that we might be free. It was kind of a cosmic payment for that's how this universe works. Someone has to pay the price. And if you're going to be in the presence of a fully holy God, that has to be removed. But God said he would pay for it, not humans. He would pay the ransom, and he's waiting for humans to turn towards him and acknowledge him as the one true God, Keakua. It's not enough just to believe um, Jesus exists. Think about it. Satan believes Jesus exists, but nobody would call Satan a Christian. Belief is not enough. To be a Christian, it means action. It means to follow Jesus in every area of our lives. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 10, it reports the same episode of James and John, but it adds these very lines at the very end. They said to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized? So here's a new concept with the baptism that I'm baptized with. They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those who, for whom it has been prepared. So what is this baptism Jesus talked about? Pastor scholar Tim Keller says this is the kind of baptism, not like our water sacrament, but more like an 
overwhelming experience, an immersing experience of taking upon the very penalty and judgment of our sinful crimes and saying, I will pay for it. And what is even more upside down is that, like, is that it's like Christ is the actual judge and he comes from behind the bench to stand with the convicted and says, you know what, I'll go to jail for the prisoner and I'll pay his sentence and I'll pay for any reparations. Tim Keller points out that many fiction books get this sense of sacrificial love, like the famous Harry Potter series. The only way you break the cycle of evil and sin and despair in our lives is if someone makes a sacrificial act of love. Lord Voldemort, he's called the Dark Lord, who is kind of the Satan character in the book, the one whose name you must never mention, searches for the baby Harry Potter to kill him. And Voldemort finds him. And then he goes into his room and he fires this death spell at little Harry. But his mom, Lily Potter, intervenes and gets hit with the spell and she dies. Substitutionary sacrifice. When Harry is much older, Lord Voldemort is after him again and tries to kill him. And he grabs him, but Voldemort discovers that he, he, he can't physically touch Harry. His hands burn when he touches Harry. So Harry later goes to his mentor, uh, Professor Dumbledore, and asks, why couldn't Voldemort touch him? And here's what Dumbledore says, and I quote, it's very profound. Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love, as powerful as your mother's for you, leaves its own mark, not a scar, no visible sign, to have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. Close quote. Dumbledore gets it. Harry Potter gets it. Do we get it? Only in a pure, sacrificial love will there ever be an earth-shattering change in society and in our hearts. Jesus Christ was that. He sacrificed his love for us by taking on the death spell of Satan on the cross. It was an act of pure love. And even though he is gone from this earth, his protection is forever if you follow him. Can we comprehend that Jesus loves us so much that he took, in a sense, the spell for us? He took the bullet and literally took the punches and the whips and the nails for you and me. And when we get that, then out of love for God, we won't mind being at the bottom of the triangle where we can push others up because we are so grateful that we want them to flourish instead of flounder or wither or die. When someone is saved from a drinking addiction, they don't mind helping other alcoholics. When someone is saved from pornography, they don't mind helping others who are still addicted to porn. When someone is truly saved, that person really wants to lead others to Jesus, because we're all just beggars 
trying to help other beggars where to find food. We're not above them. We don't mind pushing other people up so that they might find out of what it means to know Christ as Lord. We don't mind serving. We don't mind doing it because we love Jesus so much. We are so thankful for what he did for us, and we want to be like him and do his will. But James and John, they were young in their faith. They didn't get it. They wanted to use Jesus to make them great. And the crazy thing is that in the paragraph prior to our scripture passage, Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. And so it makes James and John's response even more horrible because already they're asking, oh, you're going to die? Can we sit in heaven next to you? So selfish. They have no concept of the sacrifice Jesus was making. But is that us? If we don't have the concept of Jesus' sacrifice for us either, then Satan wins. And we're still prisoners. The real Voldemort wins. So, we can get angry at James and John in this story and call them jerks, but are we the ones in the story who continue to make our prayer life be all about our self-centered requests? And by the end of their lives, guess what? James and John get it. In fact, James is um, killed for his faith as he tries to lead others to Christ. And John is put into exile on an island, and he later writes the book of Revelation. And in that sense, their testimony shows they are indeed sons of thunder who loudly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We will become a greater church when we learn to look beyond ourselves and see that we are but humble servants for Christ who died for us. Or as Dumbledore says in Fighting Evil, and I quote, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. So let's not become a polarizing divisive force. We're following Christ. When we truly become followers of Jesus, we become, as he said, born again. Really. We are new creatures with new hearts, and the Holy Spirit actually enters us when we make that confession of faith to Jesus. And we begin to act differently, and new habits form, and old self-centered and destructive habits, maybe in even addictions, can start to fade. And we have new eyes that we see that the old crosswalks across six lanes are gone. And new paths must be followed for the safety of our future. It's a new day. But it starts off with a very serious prayer. Saying, Jesus, I really, really mean it when I say I want to follow you and you alone for the rest of my life. Come into my life. Please lead me. And for some of us, it might start today as a leap of faith of, okay, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And it might be a first-time ever decision, or it might be a recommitment 
And so I have a hunch there's someone out there online or here in the sanctuary who might be saying, okay, this week, if Tan asks that question again, that's a sign I'm ready to make that commitment and get as serious as possible as I can. I won't be perfect, but I'm really going to try and follow Christ. So let's pray and see what the Lord is already telling you in your heart. Okay, let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us. Lord, this might be a time of tremendous courage for those who are saying, okay, I want to be in now. I want to be, I want to follow you. I don't know everything yet, but I want to be a Christian. And there's some here who say, you know, I've been a Christian, but this takes it to a new level and I want to recommit my life. So Lord, I'm just going to lead those online and here in this sanctuary a simple prayer of sorry and thank you and please. And if they agree with it, they can say it with me in the silence of their hearts. That basically starts off saying, Lord, sorry. Forgive my sins. Sorry that maybe I've avoided you or ignored you or didn't take this all very seriously. Maybe I didn't appreciate that you died for us. You paid the ransom. So, Lord, I just want to start off humbly saying sorry. And then I want to express my gratitude and say thank you. Thank you so much for what you did. And I really appreciate you paying the ransom. I appreciate you loving me so much. And now please come into my life. Come Holy Spirit, send your spirit into my heart, my soul. Please come in and I want you to be my Lord. And I'll try my very best to make you the Lord of every area of my life, my social life, my work, my home. Lord, you know what's going on in people's hearts and minds right now. And I pray your Holy Spirit will continue to talk to them. And as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if there's anyone first here in this room who made that prayer of either a first-time commitment or recommitment, if they could just raise their hand now, and I, I as their friend and pastor, will confirm that before the Lord. So if they would just do that right now as a recommitment, or a first-time commitment, just keep your hand up right now. Okay, thank you. You can lower your hands. And Lord, those who are online, 
speak to them. And if anyone has made that commitment in some way to commit their life anew or for the first time to you, Lord, if they could just hit that button that says, I commit my life to Jesus, and maybe there's another button to ask for prayer, and someone will come alongside of them to pray. And whether online or here in person, if those who raise their hands could just share it with one other person of what they did today, that just helps seal that decision. So Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for speaking to us through your spirit. And Lord, as, as we close this worship, we just want to sing to you that we realize we just want to be more like you and less like us. And so for those who are here in the sanctuary, please stand if you so desire as we sing this song. And for those of you online, please sing this out wholeheartedly in a prayerful fashion. In Christ's name, amen. Before I give the final blessing, I just wanted to say that if some of you want prayer and the Holy Spirit may have stirred something up, our prayer team is right through those glass doors outside in a very peaceful, tranquil place, and they would love to pray with you on anything. Maybe it's a physical healing, something emotional, maybe something spiritual. So please take advantage of that. And um, for those of you online, you can hit that button that says, I would like some prayer, and the prayer team online would pray, will pray uh, with you. And now for all of you, I have a blessing, so please receive this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and his countenance be upon you. And may you know deep in your heart this wonderful love of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May you know he's with you always. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, for those of you online as well as here in the sanctuary, mahalo so much for joining us today. We're so grateful you could be with us. We'll see you next Sunday. So ahui ho, God bless. See you later. Aloha. The love Jesus has for us can be the same love we have for others if we just allow him to be Lord of our lives. If you want to catch up on or listen to previous services, you can find past sermons on our websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. You can also find First Prayer sermons on most major podcast services and on YouTube. In-person worship continues, but still in limited capacity. There are two live services at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. If you'd like to participate, we ask that you sign up through the websites on a weekly basis. And both services will be streamed live on the church websites. Once again, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. Sign up for First Prez emails where you can get links to sermons, church news and updates, registration for in-person worship, and lots more. And as always, if there's anything First Prez can do for you, you can always reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Senior Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2021 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.